All right, good morning. Good morning. So, pop quiz. If you want half off the marriage conference, when do you have to sign up by? Tonight. Tomorrow. tomorrow. Well, tonight would be better. Sorry, Holly's. You're wrong. Uh, by tomorrow. And uh, if you want to hang out with our staff for a weekend, uh, much of us are going to, many of us, grammatically, I don't know how to say that. There'll be a bunch of us who are there, and we'd love to hang out with you. So what I'd like to do is open up in prayer um, during the first service. I bid it. Um, hanging on the edge here and almost fell, and uh, I caught myself, don't worry. But many of you have been telling me, we watch you teeter on the edge, and we have been waiting for you. Well, the 9 a.m. service was, was that day. So let's pray together and pray I don't fall. Um, Father, truly do love you, and um, I'm so grateful for um, you giving us your first and your best, giving us Jesus. I'm so thankful that Jesus paid the price for our sins, that we do not have to atone for our own sins. It has been done. It is finished once for all by Jesus on the cross. I thank you that you raised him from the dead, proving to all of humanity that he is not just another dead man, but truly is God in the flesh. And so, Father, we love you. And as we open up your word, as we launch this series in the book of Ephesians, our um, desire is that we would fall in love with you and with your local church all over again, or maybe even for the first time. And so, God, we love you. We thank you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this may not surprise you, but I truly love the local church. I love it. And I remember very specifically when I fell in love with the local church. I want you to rewind with me. Um, when I was in high school, I went to a larger church and uh, I had a bunch of buddies and all of them wanted to be pastors or missionaries except for me. And uh, there's about 10 of us and I was like, no, I will not become a pastor. So for fun, here's what we would do. We would go into the sanctuary, big sanctuary. It was about a, I don't know, like a 1200 person sanctuary. We'd get in there and my buddies would go up on the stage. They'd get behind the pulpit and they would preach these awesome sermons. We'd be like, amen, brother, keep going, amen. You know, and, and, uh, but I would never get up there. I was like, I will not become a pastor. So I went to Michigan State and at the end of my freshman year, my dad says, you do realize you need to get a job. And I'm like, yeah, 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 I got it. I'm under control. I'm going to get a job. It'll be fine. So I go to bed, and I am praying, and I said, all right, Jesus, I need a job. Could you help? Fall totally asleep. I wake up at like 10 a.m. the next morning, college, and I wake up to the phone ringing, and it was a pastor in Missouri, and uh, he's like, hey, I know a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy who knows you, and I was wondering if you'd be interested in coming to Missouri for the summer and being an interim youth director. And I was like, huh, that sounds fun. Like, I love Jesus. I was at best mediocre at communicating the Bible, had a petrifying fear of speaking in public. Why not? Let's do this. This should be fun. <laughs> so I met with a guy, and I thought this was going to be um, hard, good. I don't know what I thought. I just knew that the Lord wanted me to do this, and they paid, and I was there for a whole summer. So I was like, Dad, I got a job. Sweet. I get to the beginning of the summer, and it's this small 50-person church of mostly old people, and let me just say, if you imagine me planting a church, it's not in Hillbilly, Missouri, okay? Like, they called me Chicago because I am not of them. I'm a different kind of person than what is born and raised in Missouri. So, um, so uh, I remember my first day in the church, this little old lady comes up to me. And I, so true story, had three earrings, two down here and one up in my whatever. And uh, she goes, we're so glad to have you and your little earring too. <laughs> Never forget it. It was one of the funniest moments and I'm like, I gotta get used to this place, right? And so by the end of the summer, I was getting ready to go back to Michigan State 
and my heart was bursting with love and joy for these people. And during that summer, I was able to see seven kids who had no relationship with God before this summer, um, no relationship with the local church, come and meet Jesus Christ, trust in him, and had their lives changed. And I remember just in that moment thinking to myself, this is truly what I was made to do. And all of these stories of uh, me telling my friends, I will not be a pastor, like, oh, how I ate my words. (laughs) And uh, I, I remember thinking at the end of that summer, seven kids seven lives, seven eternities, seven families, seven kids, grandkids, great-grandkids. The payoff for generations to come is beyond what I could even fathom. And I remember thinking in that moment, like my love for them and excitement for the local church just grew and exploded. And I got to a point by the end of the summer where I said, if I did anything else, I would be miserable. So we tell people who wanna be pastors, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And here's how you know if you should do it. If you cannot in good conscience do anything else at all under any circumstance. Why? It's not because it's bad or terrible. It's because there is a weight that comes with the responsibility. The two greatest wounds in life, family wounds, church wounds, daddy wounds, pastor wounds. They go deeper almost than any other kind of wounds that you can possibly imagine. So we tell people, this isn't for the faint of heart. You don't just like be like, oh, I'm gonna be a pastor one day. It's gonna be fun, right? It's not how it works. And so we, we step back at the end of the summer and I am just, I'm in love. And then, you know, I transferred out of Michigan State, went to Moody Bible Institute, met my wife, landed at Village Church. I've been here since 2003. It was like my first real like full-time ministry job that wasn't interim. And I remember I just fell in love within like a month with our students. I actually, when I took the job at Village, I had this concern. I don't think I could ever love these kids as much as I love the kids from Missouri. And then after about a month or two of giving my best to serve them, I realized that I had way more love in my heart for the local church than that small church ever could have possibly understood more than I could even understood. And I remember just being with these kids and I'm like, my heart is bursting in love for our students, even though they drove me crazy. I mean, I only had to deal with them like three hours a week. You had to raise them, so ha. Um, But my whole life changed as a result of my time immersing myself into this local church. And then a couple years later, Bill Hybels, he's the pastor at Willow Creek. um, He had this statement that honestly, when Christians and pastors and missionaries around the world heard this, it like everybody just stopped and, I, and they just it, like resonated deep in our souls. If he has any legacy, um, honestly, I have never heard anybody more quoted than this line by pastors and missionaries. And here's what he says. The local church is the hope of the world. The local church is the hope of the world. And I remember hearing that, and I remember reading that, and every time I hear it, my heart just bursts and says, yes, the local church is the hope of the world. And some of you, you've been frustrated with your local church because your local church isn't changing the world. And I have awesome news for you. One local church will not change the world. It is not the job of one local church to change the entire world. But it is the opportunity of thousands or millions of local churches doing their job where God has placed them faithfully that changes and transforms the world. Because Jesus built his church, the entire world will never, ever, ever, ever be the same, ever. The church has revolutionized how every part of human society works and almost always for the better when it's all said and done. 
And the church has already changed the world, but is Jesus done building his church? And the answer is absolutely not. He promises he will continue to build his church. And so this morning, here's what I wanna do with you. I want to introduce our series on the book of Ephesians by telling you about the church of Ephesus. I wanna tell you the story of their planting and I wanna tell you the story of this church as revealed in scripture all the way up into um, its existence about 40 or 45 years after its planting. And here's why I wanna do this, because I want you to understand next week when we open up the book of Ephesians and we start teaching it, I want you to understand who this church is, why God plucked them out, and why God decided to plant a church in this city in Turkey, modern-day Turkey, then Asia Minor, called Ephesus. And I want you to understand what makes their heart beat. I want you to understand their unique struggles. I want you to just know this church because if you don't know where they came from, it will be so hard for you to understand why Paul is writing every word and every verse that he writes to this local church. And so as we tell the story of the church in Ephesus, I think here's what you're gonna find. You're gonna find that the village church is mighty similar to the church in Ephesus, that there are some similarities that for me are just kind of a little crazy about our context, our spirit, our values, our passion, our habits, and our tendencies. So I want you to open up your notes and we're gonna see a few just encouragements about the local church. And you're gonna find this is not just about Ephesus, but Bartlett and everywhere where there's a local church. Number one, every local church is a miracle. Every local church is a miracle. Some of you, you think to yourself, oh yeah, just go start a Bible study and people will start coming and then churches grow and then they have buildings and it's really easy, right? <laughs> Anybody ever start a church? It's not that simple. It's actually almost impossible. Um, the vast majority of churches that start close within a year. It's very, very, very difficult to plant and start a healthy, growing church. Um, honestly, I think it is one of the most counterintuitive things on the planet. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, I want you to imagine this small business model. All right, we're gonna start a business. And when we start this business, we are going to um, ask for 10% of more of all of their income. We're gonna take one whole morning of their weekend. Not only that, we're gonna take up at least one or two nights, and then we're gonna ask them to give five or 10 hours or more a week of volunteer time to make it function. And there's no immediate uh, commodity that they get out of it. Anybody think that that business is gonna grow, right? And, and so you start a, a local church, okay? And it is crazy that anybody jumps into this, which is why you're either nuts or it's a miracle of God. Okay, do you get that? Like this shouldn't be, this makes no sense unless God is in it and behind it and is doing something far bigger than what we can understand. Every local church is birthed out of the heart and the mind of God. <clears throat> there was a, a point in God's mind where he said, I will birth a church in the city of Ephesus 2,000 years ago. I will raise up the right people. I will um, navigate all these weird circumstances and bring people from all over the known world and bring them to this city at this time to make sure that the gospel of Jesus Christ is grown here, planted here, and continues to go out from this place. There was a time in God's mind where he said, I will plant a church in Bartlett. I will plant a few churches in Barlett because Village Church is not the only God-honoring, Christ-exalting, Bible-teaching, gospel-centered church in this city. There's a few others, right? And Jesus is like, I'm gonna plant a smaller church here and a smaller church here and a smaller church here. And as long as the church exists in the city, does God still intend to save some more people in that city? The answer is yes. Like, we're not done. And the fact that we're here means that God still has work for us to, to do. And so I want you to understand that the local church 
is deeply personal to God, more personal than a son to his dad or a daughter to her mom. Whatever level of protection and passion and care and concern you have for your children does not touch God's care, concern, and protectiveness of his local church. And so when we see a local church pop up anywhere, here's what we need to understand. That church is loved by Jesus, came out of the heart and the mind of Jesus. Jesus can choose to grow it, shrink it, or shut it down. He does whatever he wants. But even if he shuts a church down, that church is near and dear to his heart. He is passionate about the local church. Some of you hear this, and you're like, I just grew up in a church that like we went to church, the pastor did the work, he preached, I gave some money every once in a while when I felt good about it, and then I left. And what you're gonna find when you open up scripture is that is not at all in any way, shape, or form God's vision for the local church. That we are a family. And it is a miracle that people who already have families come into this family and give their first and they give their best to see this family grow. And then they go out and say, come, join our family. Because the church understands something. If we don't do it, there is no other organization or entity that God has created to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to this world. The government, hear me, cannot save souls. And let's be honest, most of what they touch crumbles anyways. But Jesus Christ, through the local church, is the hope of the world, the means by which he has chosen to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ into the hearts and minds of people who don't even know that they need him yet. So what I wanna do is I wanna introduce you um, to some of the founders of the church in Ephesus, and I want you to see how God is bringing people um, all over the world to this place at this time in Acts 18. It'll be on the screen, verses 24 and 26. Now a Jew, his name is Apollos. Now you may not know much about Apollos, you should. Amazing guy, so wish I could have heard him preach, but here's what it says about him. He's a native of Alexandria, he came to Ephesus. Why? He came to tell people about Jesus Christ. He left the comforts of a nice, awesome city in Alexandria in Northern Africa, came all the way over to Ephesus so that people might know about Jesus. Well, of all the places in the Roman Empire, why Ephesus? And the only answer is that God wanted to start a church, so he brought a dude named Apollos. And you're gonna find Apollos did not even understand the full gospel message, and he still went. God used somebody who did not have the Holy Spirit to begin the church in Ephesus. God does crazy things. Here's what it says. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. That's the Old Testament. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord or Jesus, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew of the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. You might be thinking, Priscilla and Aquila, who is this couple, right? This is a godly couple who lives in Ephesus, who are part of the planting team of this church, along with Apollos, who is an evangelist, preacher, teacher, and this group of people together um, planted this church. Priscilla and Aquila are just this godly, amazing, servant-hearted couple, and as a couple, they were leaders in the early church and did astounding things for God here. And so Priscilla and Aquila, they see Apollos, and they hear his message, and they're like, Apollos, like, everything you're saying is true, but you're leaving some stuff out. Have you ever heard about the Holy Spirit? And Apollos is like, the Holy what? Like, I didn't even know there was one. And so here's what we find, that they 
tell Apollos the whole story of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and, they, and he receives the Holy Spirit. And then we find as Apollos is sent out, and he is preaching from city to city to city. In Acts chapter 19, verse 1, it says this. It goes on. Paul now passed through the inland country, and he came to Ephesus, and there he found some disciples. So now already, Ephesus, this church, has Apollos, Priscilla, Aquila, and the Apostle Paul are all finding their place here. It says this, Paul looks at the disciples. He says to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. They heard about Jesus, but they never trusted in Christ. They heard that they need to tell God, I'm sorry, but they never actually received the Holy Spirit when they believed. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Now, some of you think that's the craziest part of the story. I think this next verse is. There were about 12 men in all. Like, when you read this, don't you kind of expect that there's going to be like a thousand, right? Does God love teeny tiny small local churches? Yes. Does he love them less than megachurches? No. He takes this 12 group of dudes who collectively with their families probably have 25, maybe 40 on a high-end people in this small little church, and he takes 12 people, and he's like, I can work with this. And these 12 people, they, they were willing to start a church, not, and they didn't even hear the whole gospel yet. <laughs> they didn't even have the Holy Spirit yet. Now imagine what they can do when they receive the Holy Spirit. Imagine the damage that they can cause to the city of Ephesus when they're filled with the Spirit of God. Every local church is a miracle. Number two, every local church is tested. I have never met anybody who has immersed themselves in a local church and said the following. Well, that was easy. <laughs> Again, church wounds, family wounds. And some of you may say, well, if it's so hard, then why do you do it, right? Well, why do you stick with your family? Because there's something inside that binds us together. There is a blood bond that brings us together that's deeper than even family blood, which is crazy. And until you understand Jesus and you receive the Holy Spirit, that's insanity. But there's something that binds us together. And you know what we do? We get hurt often. And we get up and we forgive. We hug it out. We reconcile and we move on because the world is watching and Jesus is our reconciliation. Because whatever differences we have, we have him in common. Every local church is tested. Acts 19, verse 8, it says this, He, Paul, entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, which is what they call Christianity then, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Most of you, if the village church of Bartlett or the leaders of the church of Bartlett were being publicly slandered in the town square or in the small business community or Facebook moms, right? You'd probably say, you know, you gotta be nicer. You gotta figure it out. You can't preach that. People get nervous. And Paul's like, I am not going to stop preaching. I'm going to be loving, don't get me wrong, but I'm not going to stop preaching. And what he, here's what he does. They get slandered with the Jews. So he's like, fine, Jews, I'll go to the Gentiles. 
And he takes this gospel message and he takes these men with him and they go preach and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles in the hall of Tyrannus, which is kind of like a place where people could debate and talk and teach and do different things. I love this in Acts chapter 20. We see that the tests have not even yet begun. In Acts chapter 20, verse 17, Paul gathers the Ephesian elders. He's been there for three years. He's poured his heart and his soul into this church. And here's what he says. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit made you overseers or pastors or elders to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Is this personal for Jesus? Yes. Does Paul understand the amount of passion that Jesus has for every local church and especially this church in Ephesus? Absolutely. And he's giving them a solemn warning. He's saying, look, you're a part of something that is bigger than you and this is something that Jesus has established and is passionate about and you have a job, elders, so pay very close attention. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. They won't just come in from outside. They're actually going to be amongst the elders. Some of the elders will rise up, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. I think sometimes in our, our minds, we think of the Apostle Paul. He's training these churches. He's like, here are the doctrines you are supposed to believe. Here are all the things you're supposed to do. This is the mission, go. Paul is in love with the local church because he knows Jesus is in love with the local church. When Paul gets up and preaches, it's not just some stoic, here are 14 points that you need to know about the book of Ephesians because I want you to be smarter. Paul pours his soul into these people he loves them, and his teaching of the word of God comes from a place of deep love and affection for these people. Like, some people, I, to me, this is crazy, some people think, like, preachers are narcissists, and I'm sure some are, okay? It's kind of weird and hard to stand up every single week for, like, 30 minutes, right? Just kidding. Like, 40 minutes, okay? Open up God's word, pour your soul out, and have people say, your jeans are too tight, your jeans are too baggy, this isn't right, I wish you were taller, you need to be younger, and it's like... Okay, I agree, okay? Some of you are asleep right now, so it's fine. Like, I didn't intend that. I wasn't like, I'm gonna bore them today, you know? Like, no preacher does that, right? And so there is this thing inside of us that we pour out our heart and soul when we open God's word and we plead and we say, this is bigger than you. This is about Jesus. This is something he's personal about. Like, you're in a fight with somebody, reconciled, because there's too much at stake for you not to do that because it's not about you, it's about Jesus. And so the pastors and the leaders and the elders and the teachers and all these people who are trying to train and say, let's do this, it is way bigger than us. It's way bigger. It's way bigger but it's worth it and it's beautiful and it's hard, but everything beautiful and amazing in life is hard and the hard work is worth it. He says in verse 31, therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Number three, every local church is equipped. Paul's writing the book of Ephesians from prison, and I love this. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, he looks at them, and here's what he says. 
And he gave the apostles. These are like the church planters. They travel around. They start churches. They taught the word of God, solidified the doctrine of the church. Like words cannot overstate the importance of the word apostles. Um, there is no church without the apostolic foundation. Okay. Then he says the prophets, they preach forth God's word to the early church. And then he goes on and says the evangelists, they proclaimed the gospel. They preached in town after town after town, Apollos and such like him who would go and make sure that the gospel was being preached. And then the, uh, the pastors and teachers would come up next. And after the evangelists preached, right, the pastors and teachers would come in and they would lay a solid foundation built on the apostles' teaching. And here's what he says, all of this orchestrated by Jesus Christ. Here's why he did all of it. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Pop quiz, who's in ministry, you or me? I lied, all of us, <laughs> everybody. So truly, and I, I, you need to hear this, you will not understand how we work here if you don't get this. Village Church is not a top-down org chart where the lead pastor sits up with the elders and we just, you, 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 go, 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 go. Like, no. That is not how we view our role. That is not how we understand this. This is an inverted bottom-up org chart where we as elders are at the very bottom. And here's what we exist to do. We exist to equip people for the work of ministry. It is my job to give my best to those who are over me, not under me, over me, to equip them and encourage them and to give them what they need to do what God has asked them to do. When you understand that this right here, what's happening, isn't about me spouting off. It is about me trying to be at the bottom of the org chart, giving you what you need from the word of God to help you become the man or woman God has made you to be so you could do the ministry God has called you to do. That's what this is about. Some people are like, man, like what kind of organization does the leader get up and he just talks to everybody for 45 minutes? A church with a leader, a place where the leader wants to serve the people and give them everything they need to do everything God has asked them to do. I love this, that God equips his church for equipping the ministry and for building up the body of Christ. Personally, I think Jesus is a genius. And I go back to this first point that we said, every local church is a miracle. It is a total miracle. I wanna share with you a personal experience that I have. Every time somebody becomes a member and almost every time I meet someone for the first time when they walk in the front doors, I think this to myself. What vision does God have for this church that he has brought you here to resource? So God isn't arbitrarily saving people like, ah, 30 people in Barlet, we'll figure out what happens with them, right? Every person who comes to faith in Jesus Christ is a personal intervention of God in their behalf. And he endows every single individual who comes to faith with a gift or ministry or calling that he gives them. And here's my question when people walk through the doors, why are you here? Not like, why are you here? Like, my life was hard. We didn't like our last church. No, like, why did God pluck you from where you're ever at, wherever you're at and drop you here? What vision is he resourcing by bringing you here? And you might be like, dude, never thought about it like that in my life. I'm just here because I'm like here with my family. And then I think to myself, I'm gonna pray that God saves you. When God saves somebody, he saves them for purpose. He is not random. He's not lazy. He's not just like, oh, we'll see what happens. Cross his fingers and hope you work out. And so here's what I know, that God has a specific agenda for the village church. You know what we know? We know his agenda today. <laughs> about right now, that's about it. The, the future tomorrow, that's in God's hands. But I know that every time God brings somebody new to this church, he's bringing them for a purpose because he wants to resource some vision that he has for the church. And so I want you to think about that in your community groups. You'll be asked the question, why are you here? 
and I, the point of the question is not like what circumstances brought you here. The point of the question is why did God pluck you from where you were at and drop you in this local church at this time? When we talk about the church being equipped, I wanna just give you a snapshot of the kind of leaders this church got. I'm just jealous of the church in Ephesus. Let's just be straight. <laughs> Priscilla and Aquila planted the church. Apollos, the evangelist, he discipled and really brought the first people to faith. Paul, for three years, like, okay, elders, wouldn't you love to be trained by the Apostle Paul for three years? Come on, like, what? Why did they get that? So you may not know this, the, um, one of the first pastors was Timothy, and the books of First and Second Timothy are all about how to be a pastor, how to be an elder, how to be a shepherd in the church in Ephesus, right? Because the church in Ephesus apparently had enough pastoral need that Paul felt like he had to write two letters to Timothy to teach him how to shepherd this church. The pastor after Timothy, do you know who it was? The Apostle John. So you think about it like this, the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Revelation, all written by the Apostle John, are written from, for, to, or through the church in Ephesus. Just to give you an idea of how influential this church is, God sent the best and the brightest, the most gifted, the most influential to this place and this city at this time because he was gonna equip them to bring the gospel to a very large and very dark and very demented city, which brings us to number four. Every local church is immersed. So I wanna tell you about Ephesus. If you don't get this, you'll miss what's happening in the book of Ephesians. This is like 101, okay? Like this is... You gotta get this. So, few things for you to understand. Number one, Ephesus is a city of about two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, two hundred fifty thousand people. Um, it's a port city off the Aegean Sea. It's in modern-day Turkey. Okay, at the day, uh, at the time it was written, it was called Asia Minor, which was um, a, a geographical term used for churches in that area um, two thousand years ago. So, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, two hundred fifty thousand people. Um, it is one of the largest cities in the entire Roman Empire, second or third, most likely. And there are a number of actual names that people, historians, have given this city, and I want to just walk through some of these names with you. Uh, number one, it was called Luminasia in Latin, which means the light of Asia. And uh, Ephesus was the cultural epicenter of the world, second to Rome. No city in the entire empire had more cultural influence than Ephesus. It was a luxurious city by and large for wealthier people. They had running water, indoor toilets, can I get an amen, fountains, gardens surrounded by magnificent columns, unbelievable, colonnaded streets paved with marble, gymnasiums and baths, a library, a theater that could seat 25,000 people, temples galore, beautiful, extravagant. This place was breathtaking. And if you ever think about going on vacation before there was electricity and running water and all that kind of stuff, you'd want to go to Ephesus, okay? This is where you want to go to live it up. And uh, number two, it was called the crown jewel of the Roman Empire. The greatest city of Asia Minor, minor hands down, even though it wasn't even the capital, and it was the home of the temple of Domitian, who was the emperor um, in the early 60s, late 50s, sometime in there. And uh, Domitian wanted them to worship him. He believed, the Roman emperors did, that they were gods, so he built an entire temple to himself um, so that they could all worship him and give him more money, i.e. taxes. It was also called the market of Asia and the greatest metropolis of the empire. Four significant highways all bled into and came out of Ephesus. Everything that went to the empire 
came through Ephesus. This is, in terms of commerce and markets, the most influential and strategic city. Nothing went to Rome, by and large, unless it came through Ephesus. It again had one of the greatest harbors in Asia Minor and was a place of a ton of commerce. Number four is called the Highway of the Martyrs. All of the Christian martyrs that made their way to Rome to die in the gladiator games all came through Ephesus. This was a place that where you, if you were a follower of Jesus, you would see your brothers and sisters in Christ on chains being dragged from wherever they were taken from as slaves to Rome to be killed in the gladiator games or in some other arena and public spectacle. And so if you were a believer in Jesus, you would regularly see your brothers and sisters and there was nothing you could do. It's also the home of the Ephesian Games, which basically rivaled the Olympic Games. Uh, it was huge, it was a massive pageant of athletics, drama, parades, sacrifices. Um, they had at least, at least that we know of four, um, stadium, four gymnasiums, and they had a huge stadium in 8090 that held the Olympic Games, just to give you an idea of how big, opulent, and prepared this city was. But I think most importantly, and this is the part where um, you gotta get this to get Ephesians. It's been called the Vatican of the ancient world, also one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, which is the temple of Artemis, also known as Diana. Now, I'd put up a picture of uh, Diana or Artemis, but there are young ones here. She basically is always pictured as a fertile, multi-breasted woman who is always trying to seduce. And so this, god, this goddess was bar none, the most influential goddess at the time of the first century um, for the Roman Empire. And Ephesus was the center of her worship. She made the uh, temple of Domitian just look like a tiny little place. This was enormous, and it was called one of the seven wonders of the ancient world because if you saw it, its beauty, its depth, its height, its pure majesty and detail would take your breath away. Um, absolutely amazing place, but one of the hard parts about this is that it was filled with so much immorality, you honestly couldn't even begin to fathom it. There's nothing like it in America. It was run by hundreds, if not over a thousand eunuchs. It was a place of sexual prostitution. It was a place of um, dark, dark magic. Um, it was a place where the world's criminals and the wealthiest would take their money and they would put it into this place. It was the largest bank in the entire empire. Uh, this was a place with crooks, with deviancy, with prostitutes, and all of this done in the name of keeping Artemis happy so that she would provide fertility for the land so that they could prosper. It was a dark place. If you were married, it would be expected that your husband would go there, have sex with a prostitute, and thereby um, pray that Artemis or Diana would work on their behalf. It was called the Sanctuary of Criminals. When you break all this down in this opulent, wealthy city where nobody really had any known or felt need of any need for Jesus, a savior, where life was fine, is this little group of 12 people, 12 dudes, and God is gonna start a church here. And God is going to transform this city. And the people are gonna resist it and darkness is not gonna want it. If you ever wanna understand Ephesians chapter six about spiritual warfare and demonic stuff, you have to understand that Ephesians six is written in the context uh, of a church that's living in the shadow of the temple of Artemis. And I wanna read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verse eight because the book of 1 Corinthians was written while Paul was in Ephesus, go figure. But I will stay in Ephesus, Paul says, until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective work has opened for me. And you'd think at this point he would say, because people are coming to Christ. No, he says this, and there are many adversaries. 
If there are many adversaries, would you write a letter and be like, I'm gonna stay here a little longer. This sounds like it's gonna be great, right? And for Paul, here's what he gets. Whenever God is about to move, Satan tries to persecute, shut down, slander, or discourage the saints. So Paul sees this and he's like, huh, God must be up to something because Satan's fighting back. And so he says, hey, y'all, like God's about to do something good here, so I'm gonna plant here for a little while and I'm gonna, I'm gonna hang out. I love the apostle's mindset and this three-year stint that he had to build this church. And to give you just a little bit of an understanding of this culture, I wanna just read for this. It won't be on the screen. You can just listen to this. Acts um, chapter 19, 23 to 41. This is the convergence of the paganism of the, Roma, of, of the city of Ephesus, cult worship of Artemis, and this little band of brothers and sisters called the local church in this area. And what you'll find, you just need to know one piece of information. The um, Ephesians believed that Artemis came down as a black meteor that landed, and then they carved apparently this black meteor into a multi-breasted woman and built the temple of Artemis around her. So you're gonna hear this meteor referenced, and that's the, the context. So listen to what happens in Ephesians 19. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, which is what Christians were called. For a man named Demetrius, he's a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, he brought no little business to the craftsmen. So when you get this, people are coming from all over the world. This was their market. They'd make little multi-breasted shrines of this Artemis chick, and then they would sell them, and people would think that if they bought these, it would go well for them, and, and that Artemis would protect them and give them fertility and all this stuff. And so this is a big business. Lots and lots and lots of money got very wealthy off of this. These he gathered together, the businessmen, with the workmen in similar trades. And he said, men, you know that from this business, we have our wealth. And you see and you hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed of her magnificence she whom all Asia and all the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged and they were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater. Remember the theater holds about 25,000 people, okay? And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, two followers of Jesus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, of course, to defend his people, the disciples, they wouldn't let him in. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Don't do this, you're gonna die. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. I love this line. And most of them did not even know why they had come together, right? Doesn't it just sound like the stupidity of people? Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Like, not good to be a Jew in Ephesus, apparently. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky, seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemous of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. 
Let them bring charges against one another, but if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he'd said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Welcome to a day in the life of the church of Ephesus. We just don't have to deal with this kind of stuff. But I love that God takes these men and he says, you know what, in this dark city, I wanna bring light. I just wanna bring light. I wanna bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know what? God saved so many Ephesians from their sins because the people ran and got afraid, because the people buckled under the pressure and under the slander. No, because they believe Jesus is worth it. And they loved people enough to tell them the truth about Jesus and to winsomely and lovingly share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them because there's too much at stake not to do it. Number five, every local church is susceptible. We'll close with this. You've heard me talk about every church has its Achilles heel. And I wanna read from Revelation chapter two about the Achilles heel of the church in Ephesus. So the church was planted in the early 50s. Now we're in the late 90s. We're talking about over a 40-year span. The church has been, Ephesus has been around for 40 years. And its pastor has been John. And John was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the gospel. And here's basically what that means. Patmos was one big rock out in the Aegean Sea. And criminals were sent there to break rock until they died. That was it. So John, for preaching the gospel in his late 80s or 90s, years old, was sent there to break rock and Jesus says, I want you to write a letter to this church, to these churches. And the book of Revelation is written to seven churches in Asia Minor, one of whom is Ephesus. And Jesus has a very, very personal letter and word for this church in Ephesus. And I want you just to read this from two lenses. The first lens is, I want you to imagine John, who has poured his heart and his soul and his life into this church. He has to hear the news that Jesus has for this church. And then I just want you to imagine that you're the new pastor. We don't know his name, but you're the new pastor of this church in Ephesus. And Jesus gives you this message. And so we start in Revelation chapter two. He says this, I know your works. I know your toil and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And you found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. Let me just break this down. You are doctrinally sound. You fight for truth. You find things that are false and wrong and you call them for what they are. You are persecuted and you're enduring. You're making it through. You are not giving up your faith in Jesus Christ. And you would think like, this is great. You're on mission you're fruitful, you're working hard, you're doctrinally sound, and don't you feel like there's nothing left you can say that's bad about this? And there's this little one-liner that I, I, just, I just think of, and I, I think as you read this, this will make sense. It's hard for a watching, watchdog to smile. It's hard for a watchdog to smile. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember there for, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Let me just make this simple. You're busy. 
You're fruitful. You're faithful. You're truthful. You call sin, sin. You don't love me the most. And hear me, I will shut your church down if you don't stop. Jesus is not afraid to shut a church down. And you can look at church, look at a church on the outside that is faithful, that is doctrinally sound, and all it takes is them losing focus on the main thing for Jesus to come in and say, you're done. You loved me. You were excited. I was not a means to an end. I was the means and the end. This was about me. But it's not about me anymore. It's about truth. It's about right and wrong. It's about being correct. It's about fighting for this. It's about being productive. It's about seeing people come to faith in Jesus. Good things, but not the main thing. And he breaks through all of this busyness, all of this persecution. Like, look at us. Look how faithful we are. If you don't love me more than anything else, then you've missed the point. Personally, I can't think of a more appropriate word for the Village Church. We are busy. We are fruitful. We love doctrinal clarity. Here's the question. Do you love Jesus more than anything on this planet? Truly. Because if you don't, collectively, if this begins to become the spirit of our church, he will not hesitate to remove our lampstand and he will shut us out and we will become darkness. And another church who gets the main thing will rise up because even if he shuts the village down, will he build his church in Bartlett? The answer is yes. Personally, I want our church to endure for generations. We are right now as old as the Ephesian church is when Jesus gives them this letter. So appropriate. Busy, busy, fruitful, fruitful, faithful. Do you love Jesus more than anything. So we're going to open up the book of Ephesians. For some of you, you're going to read chapters like chapter one, lots of doctrine, and you're going to be deceived to thinking that it is a list of doctrines to know. You're going to read through this book, and you're going to be tempted to know more about the book of Ephesians, and I want you to hear me. The book of Ephesians is written 20 or 30 years before this because Jesus knows exactly what they need to be warned of. The book of Ephesians is one of the most affectionate letters in the New Testament. It is filled with affection. It is filled with love. It is filled with three prayers that are so intimate and personal where, where Paul is pleading for them to grow in and protect the love that they have for Jesus Christ and for one another. When you read the book of Ephesians, you need to understand this is one huge, big, fat warning to prevent this from happening. And don't you love that even 30 years later, Jesus comes in and gives them another chance? Like, is Jesus just like, nope, you failed, we're done, we're out of here, shutting the church down? No, Jesus loves the local church, protects the local church, warns the local church. And my prayer is, Jesus, don't shut us down before you give us another chance. Would you please fill our hearts with love and passion for the person and the work of Jesus Christ? May they never become a means to any other end than knowing more of Jesus. I wanna close and I wanna read to you the rest of his letter to the church in Ephesus. This is one of my favorite lines. Every virtue carries with in itself the seeds of its own destruction. 
Where your strength is, there are your weaknesses. Yet, this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans. So who, what? You just told me terrible things, Jesus. This is the hamburger sandwich of encouragement, okay? You got the bun, which is the encouragement, and the patty, which is the hard thing to hear, okay? It's the, the meat. He <laughs> says, good thing, you hate the Nicolaitans. I hate the Nicolaitans. Ephesus, we're good, right? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that it is so easy to make Jesus a means to our own ends. We don't want it. So my, my simple prayer is, would you protect us from ourselves? We're prone to be distracted, prone to be discouraged. So would you, would you just gently or forcefully, whatever you have to do, center us. But Lord, collectively, the focus of Village Church is the sum of all of our parts. So Lord, would you just do your work? Would you just remind us that each individual, every person who is so precious to you, who makes up this church which is so precious to you, all purchased by your blood, would you just recenter us? Would you refocus us and make the main thing the main thing? And when we're distracted, would you gently just nudge us back to where we need to be? And so we love you. And we're so sorry for the times when we fail and we get distracted and we put our eyes on other things and we use you to accomplish our own agendas. But Lord, that's not what we want. We want to know you. We want to build your church with you for your sake, for your name's sake, because you are the means and you are the ends. We love you. We worship you. And we now come to this table to remember and center ourselves on what you've done for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.